All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm thankful to be inside with the air conditioning, and especially since it looks like it's going to rain this morning. So let's pray, and we'll begin our uh, survey of Chronicles this morning. Father, thank you for uh, just the blessing it is uh, to have this facility. We know that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today uh, do not have air conditioning or a fancy audiovisual system um, or many of the, the comforts that we enjoy here. And Lord, we just want to recognize and, and be grateful for all that you've allowed us to enjoy. And I pray that uh, we would be able to really focus on your word this morning uh, in light of that, that we would take advantage of the blessings we have, that we would maximize uh, this time that we can set aside for study, that we would maximize this morning set aside for worship, this day set aside for rest. And we ask God that as we spend time in your word, as we spend time together, as we spend time worshiping you today, that our hearts would be stirred uh, to love you and to see you as you are. And we pray that you strengthen our faith. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I get the uh, privilege of giving us a walkthrough um, through quite a large portion of Scripture, First and Second Chronicles. Uh, First and Second Chronicles, which we're just going to title Chronicles, uh, because originally it was one book. And later, people thought it would be helpful just to split it in half. So in that sense, it's similar to First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, these longer historical volumes that are divided in two. And the title is kind of a, a winding path on how we got there. Chronicle isn't probably a word you use very often, uh, but the Hebrew title was the Book of Annals, and that's just a, the, the word annals is a descriptive account. It's a record um, of historical events that happened, kind of an official record. So in Hebrew, it was called the Book of Annals. Later, in the pre-Christian Greek writings called the Septuagint, it was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. This is before Christ. Uh, It was called The Things Omitted Concerning Kings of Judah, which is an unfortunate title um, because it makes it sound like 1st and 2nd Kings didn't quite get the job done, so somebody came around later to fill in the gaps. Uh, But that's really not what the book of Chronicles is, and so that's an unfortunate title. Uh, but that's what it was called, things omitted concerning the kings of Judah. Later in Latin, uh, which is a, a later language, as the Latin Vulgate was written, it was called the Chronicles of the Total Divine History. And I think that's a better title, a chronicle or a record, an account of the total divine history. And that title recognizes the fact that the book of Chronicles starts with the genealogy, and that genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. So the Latin translators recognized that this book was capturing at the time the full record of what God had done in human history, spanning all the way from the creation to the return of the exiles after 70 years in Babylon. So our English title of Chronicles draws on that Latin um, label that was put on it in the Latin Vulgate, the Chronicle of the Total Divine History. We just know it as First and Second Chronicles. So a little bit of a backstory there. Um, and, and oftentimes, one of the reasons I think First and Second Chronicles is probably one of the more neglected uh, portions of the Old Testament uh, is because we don't always appreciate how it relates to the other Old Testament books. Um, in the Hebrew canon, the Chronicles was actually the last book in their Bible. They put it right at the very end, whereas we usually stick it right after First and Second Kings. Um, so it was the last book in the Hebrew canon. 
And the reason why we don't often value it is it overlaps with other books in the Bible. It covers roughly the same time period that's recorded in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. So a little chart there that shows you 1st Chronicles spans uh, Samuel and 2nd Chronicles spans 1st and 2nd Kings. And so by the time you get to Chronicles in your Bible reading, you might feel like you're driving around in a strange city and you're saying, wait, have I seen that building before or is that new? I can't remember because I know I've seen some of these things, but not all of these things. And it's easy to sort of um, get a little bit mixed up. Um, but let's talk a little bit about why Chronicles is in our scriptures, why it belongs, why we would be missing something if First and Second Chronicles wasn't there and all we had was Samuel and Kings. And so to do that, I want to talk about the authorship, the date, and a little bit about the audience, and then move on to the purpose of the book as well. So the date of Deuteronomy, or rather uh, Chronicles, Chronicles was written uh, after the exile, or at least at the end and leading right up to the end of the exile. And so in that sense, it's very similar to the book of Deuteronomy. If you remember, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law where Moses writes down a copy of the law. He basically preaches a sermon to a new generation of Israelites. Remember that first generation had died off in the wilderness and they had the law. They had the 10 commandments. They had all the stipulations for the priests. They had all the instructions, but they were unfaithful. They died off in the wilderness. And then Moses as an old man preaches this last sermon to a second generation of Israelites. They're about to enter into the land of Canaan. And he repeats a lot of material, but it was instructive for that generation. Chronicles is similar in that first and second Kings was written for that generation that was going into exile. Um, and Chronicles is a recap of everything that happened prior to the exile for that new generation that just like those Israelites in the wilderness, they're about to enter back into the promised land, uh, as we'll see. And so we believe that Chronicles was written after the exile because we see uh, mentions of Cyrus at the end and, and a record that they're about to head back into the land. So it's not really speculation. We know that that's recorded as a historical fact, which tells us when it was written. So it's hard to date that exactly, but somewhere around 450 BC, give or take a couple decades, depending on when the book was started, when it was completed, there's some wiggle room in there. But basically that's what we need to understand about the, the time period in which this was written. Now think about it for the, the people of Israel. They've been in captivity for 70 years. Now they're coming back into the land. Why do they need this record? Why do they need a history of everything that happened before? Well, think about it. They have no king. They're people without a king. They have no temple. The temple's been destroyed. How are they going to worship God? Has God abandoned them? They have no priestly service. The priests are sitting around twiddling their thumbs. What do we do? Because we don't have any of the equipment. We don't have the right place to do it. How do we worship God? So this people who's coming back into the land of Israel after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, there's probably a lot of questions. There's probably a lot of uncertainty. Is God done with us? Is it possible for us to be restored to what we were before? So there's some really big questions there that are very, very important. As far as who wrote the book of Chronicles, uh, many people believe it was probably authored by Ezra. Ezra was a scribe. Ezra, Ezra had a lot of priestly knowledge and information. Um, and it looks like uh, whether it was Ezra or not, whoever it was compiled the book of Chronicles from various sources. We see all these references throughout the Chronicles, references to the Chronicles of King David, the book of the kings of Israel, the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and multiple different prophetic writings, the writings of Samuel, the writings of Nathan, the writings of Gad and Ahijah and Iddo and Shemaiah, and even references to these anonymous seers and their prophecies. So 
whoever it was, was compiling this account, drawing from all these different sources and stitching it together for a purpose, for a purpose. And as far as who he was writing to and who he was writing for, um, this isn't something that is crystal clear, but it seems very likely that it was written to and for the leaders in Israel. Uh, some of the, the way that the chronicle, chronicler will mention, oh, the rest of this you can find in this account or that account. It assumes that whoever's reading and studying this book, whoever's responsible for knowing these things, likely has some access to official documents. Um, not everybody had a copy of the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. Not everybody had a copy in their personal library of the writings of Iddo or Ahijah. These were things that would have been in official libraries that only certain people had access to. So again, this is important for people coming back into the land. Whoever's going to be in leadership, they need to know where they came from. They need to know what went wrong. They need to understand who God is if they're going to lead this people into the next chapter of history. And so that's a little bit about how this book is compiled. And, and the purpose of it, I believe, is that Chronicles was written to encourage this remnant of returning exiles to trust in the faithfulness of God. It's to encourage them. They're coming back again with no king, no temple, no priests. They just had 70 years in captivity, and they might be wondering, what's next for us? Can we trust God? Are we still his people? Are all those promises from the past just gone? Big questions. And so again, this is written to inspire hope in God's covenant. It's written to assure them that if they will trust in God and submit to his law, avoid the failures of their forefathers, God will be faithful. He will accomplish everything that he promised. So the book of Chronicles is more than history. We often think of it as history, but it's history with a theological emphasis. There's theological emphases on who God is and God's promises and several different themes, as we'll see. And which means that this record of history is intended not just to inform, but to persuade. It's written so that the people of Israel, these returning exiles, would believe in something. And that by believing in this something, they would be equipped to be who they need to be, stepping into the next chapter of the history of Israel. This is an emphasis that was desperately needed by its original audience. And guess what? That same emphasis is also relevant for us today. Don't we need to trust in God's promises? Don't we need to be assured that he hasn't given up on his people and that he is always faithful and that it's important that we trust him and submit to him and obey him? Yes, that is an evergreen purpose and emphasis in this book of the Bible. So very timely for those people, but eternally relevant for us as well. I think it's helpful if we contrast maybe the different purposes of Samuel and Kings and then the book of Chronicles. We can show that here. Samuel and Kings has a shared focus on both, both the north and the southern kingdoms. There's the 10 tribes in the north, and then there's the, the two tribes, especially Judah, centered around Jerusalem in the south. And if you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the emphasis, the focus is really on all of that. Um, there's a great emphasis on the throne. Who's king? How long did they rule? How did they get there? How, were they, how did they die? How were they deposed? There's a lot of emphasis on the throne. There's emphasis on civil and political history. How are they engaging with the nations around them? Uh, what what uh, things are taking place within these different regimes? There's a lot of emphasis on the ministry of the prophet. We see Elijah and Elisha, Samuel and others, and a lot of emphasis on prophetic ministry. 
We see a lot of uh, detail recorded with the wars that they were involved in. Again, things that are going on with, with geopolitical um, uh, themes. And we see throughout uh, Samuel, and especially First and Second Kings, an indictment on the two nations. This is what they did wrong, and this is how... This is what led up to judgment. This is why they ended up in Babylon. It was deserved. God was so patient with them. He gave them chance after chance after chance. And this is the downward slope of the people of God in Israel that led to a divided kingdom, that led to apostasy, that led to exile. So there's sort of this overall message of doom. First and second Kings is not super encouraging because it's this downward slide. And it answers that question for people that would have been in exile. I mean, think about it. If you grew up in Babylon and your parents told you that you are the people of God, you're this chosen nation, God has promised to bless you and make you great. And then you say, then why are we here? Why don't we have a king? Why is our temple destroyed? Does that mean our God isn't as strong as the gods of the Babylonians? And you would read first and second Kings and go, oh no, God sent us here and here's why. So that was a very important um, uh, lesson that those people needed as they were in exile. So that's why First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings were written to answer that question. Chronicles, however, is different. Chronicles is for those people coming back into the land. And so Chronicles focuses on the southern kingdom of Judah. Again, the 10 tribes were scattered. They'd been taken by the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom had been taken into Babylon and, and many of them were now returning. And so there, centered around Jerusalem, Chronicles focuses on the history of the southern kingdom. So there's references throughout Chronicles to the northern kings and northern tribes, but really the spotlight is on Judah. And in contrast to the emphasis being on the throne, the emphasis in Chronicles is on the temple. Everything surrounds the temple. Everything is focused on the temple. You might wonder, well, why is that? We'll talk more about this in just a moment, but very obviously it's in them neglecting the temple and abandoning the worship of God was why they were sent into exile. And coming back, as we get into Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the minor prophets, they're supposed to rebuild the temple. So they need to understand how important the temple is to what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be Israel. It focuses rather on civil and political history. It focuses on their religious history, on worship, on the temple, on idols, on revivals and, and restoration of the temple, different things like that. Rather than emphasizing the ministry of the prophet, it focuses on the role of the priests. Again, it's about temple, it's about worship. Instead of focusing on wars, they're focusing on that aspect of life in Israel. And instead of a message of doom and indicting those two nations, rather the way the, the chronicler stitches all this together is really meant to encourage that remnant, to encourage the ones coming back that to remind them that God is great and that he keeps his promises and that when his people trust and submit to him, there's amazing things that happen. And, and, and the chronicler wants to highlight God's promises and God's faithfulness so that they will have the courage that they need to come back into the land, resettle the land, rebuild Jerusalem and the wall and the temple and all of those things. So it's a message of hope. And it answers that question, will the kingdom really be restored? And again, Chronicles is meant to show that though they failed, though they were sent into exile, God hasn't abandoned his purpose. God's plan for history is still on track. So I think it's helpful just to see how First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, there's a lot of overlapping information, but the emphases are different because the purposes are different. And this book would have been so precious and important for what uh, those people needed to know coming back into Israel. There's three key themes 
that I think uh, the author really pulls out. The first is covenant. That's a key theme you can trace throughout the book. Second key theme that we've already talked about a little bit is that is the temple. And then third, there's a theme of blessings and curses. Again, this explains so much about their history, but also offers to them both warning and encouragement. Again, the question is, you guys are coming back into the land. Are you going to do it differently than your forefathers? Are you going to follow in their footsteps? Are you going to follow God? And there's a promise of blessing. There's incentive here. They're invited to trust God and to step out in faith and see what God will do if you will trust him. So those are three key themes. Let's just dive into those a little bit. First of all, the, the covenant, specifically the Davidic covenant. And we find this in 1 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17, we find um, uh, this promise that God makes to David to build him a house and that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. And again, how does this play in? Why is this so important for the first readers, that original audience, to be reminded of this? Again, they already heard about it in, in 2 Samuel. They, they know about it. But again, remember, no Davidic ruler currently sat on the throne. They might be tempted to question, has God forgotten us? Has God failed? Did God change his mind with the whole, I will give David an heir and he'll sit on the throne forever? No, absolutely not. He wants to reaffirm that Davidic covenant and say God hasn't given up on that. There's also an interesting contrast with the Davidic covenant. There's a contrast that would have been instructive for them as well. A contrast specifically with Saul's failed dynasty. Saul's dynasty failed. Saul failed. He did not trust God. He did not obey God. The kingdom was taken from him. And his bloodline would never sit on the throne in Israel. And we see also the failed 10 northern dynasties. Even though the nation split in two and there's 10 tribes in, in, the, in the north, in the southern two tribes, it was always a son of David that was reigning on the throne. But in the northern 10 tribes, there was 10 different family lines that at one point ruled from the throne in the north. And so you see a contrast here, a contrast between what God is doing and his promise and between the way of unbelief, the way of rebellion, the way of worshiping idols and doing it your own way. There's a contrast there. It's really a tale of two houses. It's interesting as you look in 1 Chronicles 17, seven different times you see the word house that's repeated. David says, I live in this fancy house, but God doesn't have a very quality house. He lives in a tent. He's troubled by that. And then God responds and says, look, I don't really need a house. I'm paraphrasing here. And David's not going to be the one to build me a house, but I'll actually build him a house, speaking of his bloodline, that a dynasty coming through David's, uh, his, his family tree. So it's really a tale of two houses. And, and it's amazing to see that interplay back and forth with God and Nathan the prophet and David. And we see that this Davidic covenant, specifically here's how it plays out throughout the rest of the book. This covenant is upheld by God despite human failure. What an encouraging lesson that those people needed to know. For example, in, in 2 Chronicles uh, 21, verse 5, it says, Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. That's a bad thing. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. Why? Because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give him a lamp to him and to his sons forever. This book is written to show, yes, there's some failures there, but God does not fail. And he will keep that promise to David to preserve his bloodline and to put one of his 
sons on the throne forever. We see that this covenant is upheld despite opposition. In 2 Chronicles 22, verse 10, we see all of this intrigue and people are killing people and trying to steal the throne. It says, now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeath, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus Jehoshabeath, the daughter of King Jehoram, and wife of Jehoiada, the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not put him to death. You see how that happens? There's a faithful wife of a faithful priest who sees that the bloodline of David is about to be wiped out. And she steals that baby away, hides him, rescues him, and that's how God preserves his promise, that the line of David is not going to be stamped out. That Davidic covenant is still in play. So God upholds that covenant despite human failure, despite opposition, and even despite exile. In 1 Chronicles chapter 9, it says that all Israel was recorded in the genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel, and Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Human failure. But God is faithful. We see later that, uh, that God did not wipe them out because of the Davidic covenant. He brings them back. And as he brings them back, we find that one of the people mentioned in that genealogy, the genealogies can cause our eyes to glaze over sometimes, but we see in 1 Chronicles 3 that there's a son of David named Zerubbabel, and he's leading the group as they're coming back into Israel. Zerubbabel is with them. And you can trace his bloodline all the way back to David. God has not quit on that promise. He always keeps his promises. So that Davidic covenant that is upheld by God, despite human failure, despite opposition, despite exile, despite human unfaithfulness, God is faithful. That is a key theme throughout First and Second Chronicles. We see here a key text right in the heart of this passage about the Davidic covenant. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. This promise is fulfilled in the near future by Solomon. Solomon actually builds the temple, but it's fulfilled in its fullest sense by Jesus the Christ, Jesus who sits on the throne forever, and Jesus who by dying on a cross and rising again and saving us builds a household, builds a family for God. It's an amazing prophecy, and we see throughout this book that God will not give up on that promise. There's a second key theme. That's the theme of the temple. We actually have 18 chapters in the book of 1 Chronicles that are focused on temple planning and temple construction. Again, that may cause your eyes to glaze over. But remember, this is a people who are coming back out of exile who don't have a temple anymore. And the narrative high point of this section is the dedication of the temple, 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, which in a book that has genealogies and building constructions and all of these things, these two chapters, 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, I think are some of the most exciting chapters in the Old Testament. You have a people that are, that are focused on God. They are trusting in God, worshiping God, making these sacrifices. You have a king who, at the moment, Solomon was being a righteous king and a faithful king, and he's praying and dedicating this temple to God. And then you have the glory of God come down and fill the temple. It is this climactic moment in the history of Israel. 
And it's a beautiful thing. It's really the narrative high point right there in that long section about the temple. So temple is a key theme. And we see that even after the temple is planned and built and dedicated, that the temple features prominently in Israel's experience. Their attitude towards the temple really reflects their attitude towards God. It really reflects their attitude towards his presence. And we see that throughout the book. Um, We see that only the Levites are allowed to serve. We find a man named Uzzah touching the Ark of the Covenant. And he wasn't doing it the right way. He lost his life. That's how serious it is. How we treat the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and God's priestly laws, that is reflective of how we treat God. And that's why God killed Uzzah. Because Uzzah disregarded God and God's wishes on how the the ark was to be cared for. We see later a king, Uzziah, who starts off well, but then later he presumptuously goes into the temple to offer incense. And he's not a Levite. He's not a priest. He should not have done that. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's one of David's descendants. And God gives him leprosy. How you treat the temple, how you treat the worship of Yahweh, and and all of those things, that, that reflects your direct attitude towards God. So throughout the Chronicles, we see that their attitude towards the temple is very, very important. Only Levites can serve. And we see that wicked kings are shown to be wicked because they neglect or reject the temple. As you read through that, you see all of these failed kings, these ungodly kings who let the temple fall into disrepair. Or worse yet, they set up idols in the temple or they take things out of the temple and use them for other things. And so wicked kings are the ones who neglect or reject the temple. The temple is this key theme that reflects their attitude towards God. In contrast, we see that the righteous kings are the ones who renew the temple facilities and renew temple usage. The ones who bring everybody back and say, let's fix the temple up, let's clean it out, and let's start using it the way God wants us to. Those were the righteous kings. Um, Very important theme throughout 1 and 2 Chronicles is the temple. We see that the northern tribes are condemned because they're guilty of erecting alternative worship sites. We see this in 2 Chronicles 11, 13 through 16. Um, As the temple is being renewed in Judah, in Jerusalem, um, all of the the priests and Levites are summoned. Hey, you guys have a job to do. Come to Jerusalem. And in 2 Chronicles 11, it says that all the priests and Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to him from all the places where they lived. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings. They came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. That's bad leadership. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and the goat idols and the calves that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord, the God of Israel, they came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, to the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years, they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. So you have a contrast. In the faithful kings that were obeying God, they got priests and Levites and worshiped Yahweh in the temple. And the unfaithful kings, they fired all the priests and Levites, hired their own alternative priests and set up these worship sites in the high places and and other other things that were not sanctioned by God. So the northern, northern tribes are condemned. They're guilty because of their disregard for God's instructions for how he wants to be worshiped. Not only are the northern tribes condemned, we see that those who seek Yahweh in his temple are filled with joy. Um, We don't have time to go through all of these passages, but it's amazing to go through and see how at Solomon's coronation, um, at the dedication of the temple, 
And then later when Hezekiah restores the temple and all three times, it talks about the abundance and the joy that the people of Israel experienced when they were rightly aligned with God when they were worshiping him. There's this abundant sacrifice, there's gladness, there's feasting, there's singing, there's, this is more than just history. Remember, the, the one who's writing Chronicles wants to show the people of Israel as they return that look, when you worship God and you worship him his way, he actually blesses you greatly. There's joy, there's gladness. It's sort of uh, an echo of what we find in Psalm 16. That in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. God's not going to punish you for worshiping him. He's going to bless you. So this is meant to persuade. As you read through this history about the temple, and then you're supposed to go and build one, if you've just read about all of this, you're going to be motivated to get after it, right? You're going to have all, you're going to be equipped for what you need to do. I love this text. Right in the middle of the dedication to the temple in 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon prays, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. It says, God, there's no one like you, so we should worship you. You are faithful and you show steadfast love towards us. You keep your promises, but you keep it specifically for those who walk before you with all their heart. Because of who you are, we need to worship you. We need to worship you here. Uh, it's a beautiful prayer, and God blesses that, responds to that. There's a third key theme we see throughout the book of First and Second Chronicles, and that's this theme of blessings and curses. And again, while this book is meant to encourage, uh, and it's meant to give hope to this returning group of exiles, they also need to be reminded that if they follow in the footsteps of their fathers, they too will be judged. There might be a temptation for them to think that, well, you know what, it took a long time for, um, for all that iniquity to pile up and them to be sent into exile. God won't punish us right now. Well, let's just take a step back, the author of Chronicles says, and remember how this whole thing works. Those blessings and curses are really rooted in the Mosaic Covenant. It's rooted in the law of Moses. It goes all the way back to Exodus, to where God gave his law to his people at Mount Sinai. And we find there that there's covenant blessings and covenant cursings. The question is, will they be faithful to the Mosaic Covenant? God is faithful to his promise to Abraham. God is faithful to his promise to David. Will you be faithful to your part in the Mosaic Covenant? That's a big question. We see throughout the book of First and Second Chronicles that loyalty to God, faith and obedience is blessed. We see this in 2 Chronicles 14, 11, and 12. We, saw, we find this righteous king Asa who cries out to the Lord his God and says, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And it tells us in the next verse that the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. There's blessings for obedience. There's blessings for faith in God's promises. He, he protects them from this invading army. I, I believe it was about a million Ethiopians that were defeated. Remarkable victory. Um, loyalty to God, faith and obedience will be blessed. That's good news. That's encouragement. When you're building the temple, when you're this small ragtag group of returning exiles and all your neighbors don't like you, you need to remember that God will bless obedience. He's on our side. We also see that unbelief leads to judgment. Unbelief leads to judgment. We see this in 2 Chronicles 24, 23 and 24. It says, At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash, 
They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. So a a small group of Israelites defeat a massive group of Ethiopians because they trust the Lord. But a massive Judean army loses to a small band of Syrians when they forsake the Lord, the God of their fathers. It's judgment. There's blessings and curses. And it always works this way because God is faithful. And he always keeps his promises. We also see this principle of immediate retribution. Yes, though God does things over spans of multiple generations, there are iniquities that stack up in First and Second Kings that leads to exile. These people needed to know, don't for a moment sleep on God's justice and think that, well, we're not following God, but it'll take a few generations before he gets mad enough to send us away again. There's this principle of immediate retribution in the book of First and Second Chronicles. And we even see this within the lifespan of individual kings. For example, we see this with Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26. In verse 5, it says that Uzziah set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. There's blessings for this king, Uzziah. But later in his life, in verse 16, it says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Because of that, he was struck with leprosy. So this idea of blessing and cursing, there's even this emphasis on immediate retribution, That faithfulness to God matters. Not just one-time obedience, but faithful, ongoing perseverance in trusting God and submitting to him. So these are these three important um, themes. There's the covenant. There is the temple. There's this idea of blessings and curses. A key text for the blessings and curses for the covenant is in 2 Chronicles 15. It says, All Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. You seek God, you find him, he blesses you. That's the promise. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of First and Second Chronicles in the short time we have remaining. Uh, you can really divide Chronicles up. <clears throat> the first nine chapters are all genealogies. These genealogies really help reinforce the identity and the privileges of God's people. It shows them that God's covenant promise is continuing. You're here today because God has worked through history throughout all of these different generations. And it goes all the way back to Adam. He goes all the way to the beginning. He says, remember your roots. Let's start back, way back, all the way at the beginning. And these genealogies aren't comprehensive. They don't record for us everyone who was born. And they don't follow every bloodline. It's very strategic in that it's sort of a winding path that follows the promise of God. It starts with Adam in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Then it goes down through the descendants of Adam to Shem. Not all of his sons. It goes through Noah to Shem. And then it goes through Shem to Abraham. And it doesn't follow Ishmael very far. It goes through Abraham through Isaac and expands that bloodline. And it goes through Isaac to Jacob, who's renamed Israel. And it it shows just a little bit about Esau, but not very much. It expands then further on Israel. And it gives a listing of Israel's sons, the 12 tribes. But then it does something very interesting. When he starts unpacking the genealogies of the tribes, he lists Judah first. He doesn't start with the oldest, with Reuben. 
because he's giving prominence to the Davidic covenant, to the line, the chosen line that's coming through Judah. So this is a very strategic genealogy that goes all the way back and traces the line of promise. It's the line of promise that matters. It's a reminder that God is sovereignly working throughout history, throughout his covenants, his covenant with Noah, his covenant with, um, with Abraham, and then his covenant with David as well. So it's a reminder of God's sovereignty working through the ages. And if God has worked through all of those genealogies, all of their stories, all of those twists and turns, then they can trust that God's not done with them and he's gonna keep working through them this remnant chosen by grace that God is restoring back to the land. The second section in, in uh, First and Second Chronicles is a very brief section on the reign of King Saul. And again, Saul reigned for 32 years, but he only gets one chapter because he was not a faithful king. There's a very sort of simple black and white statement about his disobedience and his death and the end of his dynasty. The dynasty of Saul is a dead end. So there's a very few details about that. But then we get into the reign of King David. Way more information, way more detail about that. And it's interesting here that the, the author of Chronicles doesn't record everything that happened in David's life. And notably, he leaves out some of David's key failures. He doesn't have a record of his sin with Bathsheba, for example. And it's not because the author is trying to whitewash history. It's because his emphasis is on the temple. So his recordings of David is about how David rose to prominence, how God made a promise to David, how David uh, conquered and brought peace to the land of Israel, how David captured Jerusalem and set it up as the capital city, and how David made plans for the temple. And David started collecting all of the resources for the temple. And, and so really the, the emphasis is on David uniting the nation and laying the groundwork for the worship of Yahweh at the temple. So, so the emphasis on David is on his obedience, on his faith in God, on God's blessing of him, and on the perpetual dynasty for David. So there's the reign of King David in 1 Chronicles 11 through 29. Then we come to this period of the united kingdom under Solomon. And again, nine chapters on Solomon. And again, we have no real record of Solomon's failures here. We're not told, as we are in 1 Kings, about how he built other temples for his wives and led the nation into idolatry. Rather, we are focusing on how Solomon started off right. He started off by building the temple. He started off by gathering Israel together, dedicating that temple to the Lord. And we really have these two visions in the life of Solomon that we find in, in 2 Chronicles. The first is the vision where he, he has that conversation with God where God says, ask me what you want. And he says, I need wisdom. I need wisdom if I'm gonna do what I need to do. And while in First and Second Kings, we see that Solomon's wisdom was exercised for building the kingdom and for, for ruling from the throne, in Second Chronicles, that wisdom is exercised in order to build a temple. That wisdom is aimed at worship on building that temple. And the second vision that Solomon has takes place right there in the temple as he prays to God and God makes promises and gives affirmations to Solomon. So we have the United Kingdom under Solomon and we see his wisdom is exercised in the building of the temple. Then we come to the period of the divided kingdom, right? So Solomon's son ends up not ruling wisely. The kingdom is divided into north and south. And we find, again, this theme of blessing and cursing, that blessing depends on a righteous ruler from David's house. Anytime there's a righteous descendant of David on the throne who leads the people in the worship of Yahweh, they flourish, they prosper. Anytime there's an unrighteous king who does not lead them in the worship of Yahweh, we see that the people struggle. 
Again, all of this is really setting the table for the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David who is the perfectly righteous king. And when he returns, when he reigns from the throne, there will be flourishing. There will be a millennial kingdom, even rebuilding and reconstituting temple worship. It will be, it will be things as they are meant to be because Jesus is the righteous king par excellence. He's the, he's the ultimate one who is to come later. But we see this in the divided kingdom, that when the unrighteous kings lead people away from God, there's cursing. When the righteous kings lead them in the worship of God, there's blessing. And then we see this section at the end of Second Chronicles, this reunited kingdom. And, and it really features this revival by a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah is presented as the one who upholds the Davidic line, and he unites all Israel in the worship of Yahweh. We find this in, in Second Chronicles chapter 30 as they haven't celebrated the Passover in ages. And Hezekiah realizes we're not right with God. And he brings everybody together and they, re- and they consecrate the priests and they gather together for the feasts. Um, and, and there's great joy and God blesses them. God hears their prayer. There's this reunited kingdom. And even though it's at the end, towards the end of the story and, and not long before the exile, again, the author of Chronicles is showing them this is what the ideal is. This is what you need to do. And then it leads us all the way up to the end of the book. And we sort of have it to be continued. If you look at Second Chronicles chapter 36, we'll go right to the end of the book. Keep in mind, you have all these people who've returned. They've been reminded about God's covenant and the importance of the temple and the reality of blessings and curses. There's been all this history recapped. And then you see in verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. That is a very big to be continued. As the people returning out of exile have just recapped their history and they've been reminded of what matters, God's faithfulness, God's promise, God's temple, God's justice as well. They see that God is now, they're reminded, God's the one bringing us back in. He's the one who put it in Cyrus's heart. And now what are we going to do with all that? What are we going to do with all that? How are we going to step into the next chapter of history? And we'll find out as we jump into Ezra and Nehemiah and some more of the post-exilic prophets. Will they restore the temple? Will they build it back? Will they trust God's promise and follow David's heir? Will they seek him and worship him alone or will they fall back into idolatry? Well, for the original readers, that was where the ball was in their court at the end of First and Second Chronicles. And for us, it's a reminder as well that we know who God is, that he's faithful. He keeps his promises, worshiping him, is how we come to experience his blessing and his grace. So I hope that that's helpful and encouraging to you as you continue your own study. And I hope you'll come back next week as we keep going through this very unique and important period in Old Testament history. You are dismissed.